Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 301. Oh, I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, show 301, past that milestone of show 300, then we've had a little break. And I've been sunning myself in Minorca and down south of England there for a few days as well. But we are back with show 301. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have Chip Skates by Adam Piot. Then we have the main fiction, which is limited edition by UK writer Tim Morn. Then we have Dennis Lane's Forbidden Planet talk. This was a little talk Dennis was going to do live on SofaCon and internet connections and all technical troubles. Never got to that point. So Dennis kindly recorded it and actually he gave us it just before I was going away and things didn't, didn't mesh together. So we didn't get that kind of sorted out. So we have that as well today. So that's looking forward to that. How about that? So... Show 301, and like I say, we're just now, you know, batteries recharged, been on holiday, read two books on holiday, which was very nice there, two, actually they were the, the first two in the kind of, in the, the series, the sprawling series by Lois McMaster Bujold, you know, I had Lois on SofaCon as well, and I was intrigued with, because I've never been, you know, I've never dipped me, dipped me toes into that kind of world, and it was lovely. And did I mention that I trapped myself with a new little Kindle, the, the new one with the kind of touch screen there? What? Oh, comp- even compared to the old one, which I couldn't fault the old one. Do you know what I mean? I can now. <laughs> got the new one, but just lovely. Do you know what I mean? And I said, this is a new little routine. We just did. We had this little apartment in kind of Minorca, right? You know, it's a little complex thing. And every morning I would wake up, crack a bloody dawn. Do you know what I mean? The, Bloody shift works just embedded in, printed into us, you know, like wake up silly o'clock time. But I would have a few, you know, a few little shekels in my pocket then. I would traipse down or just saunter down there with me flip flops there. I'd go to this little taverna and they made the nicest fresh coffee. Do you know what I mean? And I was just able just to sit there for, you know, an hour just reading this book or reading these books. And then I would, you know, would, the, the day would kind of drift on and I would be there again on the night time again just pop down for either another little coffee or you know a little <whistles> of beer and you know went to actually I've still got a little bit of I'll tell you why because I'll, I'll get into this well I've still got a little bit I've got about 15 I think percent of the the last or this one the last one I'm reading of Lewis's and that world is just fantastic if you haven't been in this kind of Vaucosian you know, world and all of Louise, or Louise, Louis Macaster Bujold, please dip your toes in there, dip your diddlies in there and, and find out, because it is, it's just, 
it's science fiction, full stop, bang, that's it. Do you know what I mean? And what an exciting world. And big hats off to Amy for kind of pointing that out to us, you know what I mean? Not pointing it out, just, you know, revealing that and saying, have a, have a look at that and, you know, try that. Great. And I'll tell you what as well, Amy sent over some the segments for the next, you know, looking back at genre history for the next few weeks or next few months. And this is what else I've been reading as well. And this is the, you know what I mean? The, yes, this is technology now. You can just download anything anywhere. But sitting in that cafe, you know, I was able to kind of, actually, I don't think I know. I think I must have gotten that after that. But no, that's right. Sorry, I'm, I'm waffling here. But I bought the second one when, when I was over there in Menorca, the second book, a barrier. I think I can't pronounce how you spell it. But Amy dropped these files in and she said, Oh, she's doing part of a semester, you know, this kind of teaching of science fiction that she does, Ames. She says she's doing a couple of stories from Dangerous Visions, which is all to do with the kind of the work, these segments that Amy sent over. And it was Robert Block's A Toy for Juliet in Hall Nelson's story, which is a kind of follow-up to that, called The Prowler in the City at the Edge of the World. And what a story that is, mind you. Well, it, I think... I must have read it some because it kind of rings bells, but I have no kind of recollection of it. But I don't know if anyone knows about the Dangerous Visions, Hal Nelson's collection. This is that kind of, if you're into science fiction, this is the collection, this is the anthology. Then he did another Dangerous Visions, I think, I forget what it's called. And then there's this holy grail of a collection that never actually got published, Dangerous Visions 3. But these two stories are in Dangerous Visions. And like you see, you can just, with a Kindle, you know, with any device, you just download it there and then. And I was able to read those two stories. And like I say, I haven't listened to Amy's segment. So Amy said, she, you know, they're kind of hinting on that aspect of it. But them two stories, well, especially the, the Harlan Ellison story, I think, to, in my personal view, just blew away Robert Blocks. Robert Blocks kind of left us dry and in a bit, well, it was all right. Harlan Ellison's one, do you know what I mean? It just was so deep, so terrifying, and so kind of, Rich, if you if, you know one for a better. So there's a little recommendation, which has come from Amy anyways. But try and, you know, dip your toes into the, the, the dangerous visions. Oh, that's what I did on holidays. So that was my holiday reading. Let us know what you've been reading as well, because it's always nice, do you know what I mean, to kind of get recommendations for books and everything like that. So please, if you've had some holiday reading, nice experiences, bad experiences, let me know. First up then is our very own Adam with his cheap steaks. And again, I just want a big hats off thank you to Adam for kind of looking after Starships over and taking it, you know what I mean, just taking it in different directions as well, which I'm more than happy to let, you know, Adam kind of choose his stories and things like that. So Adam, fantastic. Away you go, sir. Greetings to my fellow coach class passengers aboard the Starship Sofa. My name is Adam, welcoming you to Cheapskates and bringing you reviews of free science fiction ebooks and audiobooks. Well, Cheapskates, as you've no doubt noticed, some of my selections from the last few months have been rather, um, short. At least in terms of page count. There are many, many reasons for this, but without delving too much into my personal life, suffice to say that I haven't had a lot of time to read lately. However, I have managed to finish a real doorstop of a free book for you. At uh, least it would be a brick if there were such a thing in ebooks. For May, we'll be taking a look at Spinward Fringe Broadcast Zero Origins by Randolph Lalonde. 
At this point, I'm going to propose a new law of nature. Call it Adam's inverse length law. This states that the length of the work being reviewed is inversely proportional to the length of my resulting review on it. In short, don't expect this one to be a long one, folks. To start off, you should know that I nearly stopped reading Spinward Fringe. Twice. Without giving away too much, this was because after the first chapter, I discovered that the story I thought was being set up is not what was actually occurring. I set it aside for a while after that, a little miffed, but then decided to give it another chance, only to have another switcheroo pulled on me a few chapters later. I swallowed deep after that, took a deep breath, and decided to forge ahead and see it through anyway. And, generally speaking, I'm glad I did. In Spinward Fringe, we follow the first-person narrative of Jonas, who lives on a massive space station called Freeground. From description in the book, Freeground is a haven for freedom, which I suppose goes without saying, and also for democracy, largely because of its location in the middle of nowhere. That's also the reason given for the station's success. It acts as a location for stopover, refueling, and restocking from one destination to another. Our protagonist, Jonas, is a war veteran for Freeground, now working as a glorified air traffic controller for freighter traffic through the station. Bored, he enters a space battle simulation. He and his friends, most known only to him online by their pilot handles, advance in their skill to the point that they decide to hack into the real military simulators and take the place of the computer AI. They do so well that, well, they get caught, and are given an ultimatum. Crew an ancient starship with some interesting properties and upgrades on an off-the-books mission to explore regions unknown to them and send back any useful information or technology. Or go to prison. They take the obvious choice, of course. Jonas, as the leader of the online group, is commissioned in as the ship's captain, christened the First Light, and they go on to have all manner of adventures fighting against forces of galactic evil. While this setup of average Joe to ship captain does allow for some personal wish fulfillment of someone handing me the keys to a starship and saying, it's all yours, come back with a full gas tank. But it's a bit problematic in the context of the story. The free ground military seems a little too willing to put what are, essentially, glorified video gamers, and law-breaking ones at that, in charge of a real warship. Conversely, Jonas and his crew seem a little too willing to accept what proves to be some manipulative and questionable terms. Some aspects of the science in this science fiction are also a tad odd. For example, the first light is made of a metal that regenerates itself like a living organism. Kind of a neat concept, but it left me wondering how such a material could possibly work. If a chunk of your hull is vaporized, how on earth is a ship making new matter out of seemingly nothing? The existence of free ground itself strikes me as a bit suspect, too. A way station makes sense, but having a fully self-sustaining space station in completely empty space? Well, it boggles me a bit how that even gets going. You'd 
think it needs some source of energy nearby. Still, the battle scenes have some creative ideas, including getting a boost from a nuke and destroying a target with a transportation wormhole. And as they progress, the crew fixes up the ship in a way that always made sense to me, with the bridge at the heart of the ship under extra shielding, and utilizing a view screen that surrounds the bridge, covers the ceiling, and lines the floor. The strength of the collection, did I mention it's actually a trilogy? Are the fun and distinct personalities of the characters. I also really enjoyed the romance set up between Jonas and his chief engineer, Ian. She's a strong woman, and it's good to see the damsel come to the rescue of the knight in distress for once. Those chapters, in which Jonas and most of his senior crew are captured, are some of my favorites of the book. It's telling, I think, that these chapters of psychological battle won out over some great battle scenes. In terms of style, there is some awkwardness. For example, Lalonde occasionally writes in large sets of dialogue, with no interrupting description between, making it feel more like a movie script than a book. Also, the actual lines sometimes come off a bit stilted, like a stage of Hamlet's taking turns with soliloquies. Lalonde goes into a lot of detail about the technical aspects of the ship and the specific maneuvers in a battle, down to particular numbers. In some ways, it's a good change from the technobabble typical of science fiction, but, well, sometimes you'd like to see a little less of how the ship is going in with guns ablazing, and just let the shooting get started. Finally, I wish that there had been some more resolution for my commitment to a long story. Jonas has a sophisticated AI who winds up in an interesting situation, and I would have been interested in how that ended. And the last scene itself is completely open-ended and, well, unsatisfying. I suspect that the reason is that the answers are in the ten or so more novels in the world of Spinward Fringe. This also explains why Lalonde can put out such a hefty book for free. There's much more where this came from, and it's an effective tease. But if you don't mind being teased, and enjoy yourself some good space opera, you'll do well to give Spinward Fringe a shot. As usual, check out my website at cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com to find links to the book. All right, that's all for today, Cheapskates. The music is from Regarding Your Brains by the great Jonathan Colton under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. You can find more of his work at www.jonathancolton.com. This is Adam reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. There you go. Adam, big hugs, lad. Next up is the main fiction, and it's by Tim Mourn. I'll give you a little heads up about Tim. After spending most of his life putting it off, Bristol-based author Tim Mourn finally started writing science fiction back in the heady days of 2008. In 2011, he released his critically acclaimed paint work, 
a collection of three short stories dealing with the roles of art, celebrity and globalisation in a very near and strangely familiar future. This, his most recent story, limited edition, was published in the News, New Scientist's Arc magazine and was shortlisted for the British Science Fiction Association's 2012 Short Fiction Award. He's also a regular contributor at Tor.com and Arc Magazines. And Adam was very, very, don't you, you better just tell him there's a few swear words in there. So it is a little bit sensitive story, you know what I mean? It's got a few swear words in there. It's a, you know, if you're of a younger, a younger again, listeners might just want to skip it, you know? So Adam's just telling you there, be, be warned, there is a few swear words in there. But it is a fantastic story. Uh, Tim, what can I say? This is this is just. I tell you why. Well, I'll tell you why I like it at the end of it. This story is narrated by Graham Dunlop. Now we've had a couple of narrations by Graham as well. I'll just give you another heads up by him. Graham is the software architect and aspiring voice actor living in Melbourne. You remember Australia. He is the audio producer for the horror podcast Pseudopod and the host and audio producer for the young adult podcast. Cast of Wonders. He occasionally tweets of low interest, mainly complaints at Kibitza. So there you go. And like I say, we'll play a couple of Graham's narrations. And Graham, actually, this is a really good, you know, this is a hard story to narrate, as you'll kind of, you'll find out. And Graham, this must have took you ages to get this bike. Well done, sir. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Limited Edition by Tim Morn. Eugene Shawshot, one mile tall, strides through the wasteland. Where his limited edition trainers hit the ground, deserts bloom, city blocks rise, and mountains rip themselves from the ground. Vistas erupt from each footfall, spreading like bacteria, mingling, creating landscapes, new places from the dead ground. Civilizations rise, Intricate detail evolves around the soles of giant feet. Then Shawshot stops, as if something blocks his path. He looks up, he looks left, looks down and then looks right. He breathes and condensation forms on the screen. Shawshot steps back, raises a foot from the ground, leaving behind light trails of glass skyscrapers and steel domes, and puts one limited edition kick through the screen so all that grids can see is the rubber sole, embossed tick logo. Grids and college both flinch, then try to pretend they didn't. Glass showers the sofa. Shawshot steps through what's left of the screen, now just nine feet high, and brings one perfectly clean limited edition crep down through college's mum's coffee table. It smashes, splinters, spraying broken mugs and cold tea. The drops fall like slow-mo rain on the carpet, which is transforming itself around Shawshot's feet into streets and parks, buildings and city blocks. Infinite fucking detail like Grids hasn't seen since the last time. As he looks, he can see little statues of Shawshot, his face on billboards and video screens, So small, so complex, a perfectly formed world on the carpet scale. He looks up again, and Shawshot leans in to meet his gaze, their eyes locked, their noses so close they nearly touch. Shawshot breathes, condensation on grid specks. Shawshot speaks, 
gravel tones, Atlanta drawl. This is my world now, understand? Fade to black. Red tick logo. Just do it. Shit fam, says College. Hype ting, says Grids. Bit too hype, says College, IMO. Yeah, but nice kicks though, man, says Grids. Oh, seen, says College. Serious, nice kicks, fam. Sneaker freak. Whoa, new sure shot kicks. TV spot is up. These some fly shoes people. Hashtag this is my world now. Blink. Bloomberg Biz. Sakura Clan Incorporated, SKU, hopes to turn back last quarter's losses with new pro-gamer trainer tie-ins, sponsorship of Eugene Shawshot, seen as return to urban market. Blink. Rizza de Riz. Big ting. Unboxing vid for new Shawshot shoes. For real. Blink. Grits! Melody's voice comes hurtling down the cliff face of the tower, echoing off the concrete. What? Grid screams back. Him and College look skyward, scanning the matrix of windows. They can see her head, the glimmer of her hoop earrings, leaning out of the eleventh-story balcony, a sparkle of gold against the faded damp pastel of the Barton Hill monolith. What girl want now, man? says College. Grids, put your specs on! Melody screams again. Echoes. I got no credit, replies Grids. What? No credit. Jesus, fam, enough shouting, mumbles college. Girl, give me focus static, bruv. Then get yourself up here. Grids looks up again. Melody's head has disappeared back into the tower. He stares up at the grey, flat ceiling of low cloud, lets himself soak in the sounds. The drone of traffic, the synthetic bass rumbles, the tick of ancient, processed drums. For a second, he lets himself drift, reverse vertigo, as the towers circle and sway around him, synced to the distant, filtered breaks that ebb from unseen speakers. Their tops fade into the stationary drizzle, and the fear hits him again, flooding him with insignificance, as though any second they could come alive and crush him like a wounded ant. Nothing scares him like the insignificance. He fights the urge to run, but can't kill the need to climb, to be high, to be safe, to dominate. We should probably move, man, he says to College. She sounds pissed. College sucks his teeth. She always sounds pissed. Eugene Shawshot Official. Hold tight. RT at Rizzo de Riz. Big ting. Unboxing vid for new Shawshot shoes. For real. Blink. Piss stink lift. Squeak of kicks on laminate. Knocks on door. The bass and snare is a louder on the 11th floor. Detuned 808 hits vibrate up through grids shins. But it's reassuring up here. Safety at altitude significance. He hears chains unhook, bolts slide. Melody pulls back the orange paint chip door, looks them both up and down. About fucking time, she says. Hello, Melody, says College, his voice dripping with mock civility. It's very nice to see you. She screw faces at him, shakes her head, turns her attention to grids. 
What the fuck? Been trying to inbox you. Where are your specs? Grids pats an upper arm pocket on his storm suit. Got no credit. More head shakes from Melody, followed by a sigh. Waste man, you can use my mum's network. She give me the password, but don't be doing no sketchy shit, yeah? Oh, so we can come in then? asks College. They follow Melody into the flat, her bunches and earrings bouncing at the sides of her head, and Grid's eyes fall onto the dark skin at the nape of her neck. He feels a twinge of affection, and embarrassed, he covers his eyes with the specks from his pocket. Melody tooths him a post-it with the passcode, a seemingly infinite string of digits and symbols. Blink, network settings, blink, connect, blink, cut, blink, paste, green tick, online. Melody's mum's flat feels safe. It's clean and warm and smells of food, enough to make Grid's stomach rumble. Not that it takes much. He's not sure when he last ate. Maybe last night. Money must be tight, thinks Grids. There's only Melody's mum and the three kids, but she works and holds this shit down. She doesn't like him much, or at least not Melody hanging around with him. But apart from that, she's all right. He feels pangs of jealousy in with the hunger. So what's the fiasco? asks College. Check your timelines. Grids pulls down a menu out of his periphery, blinks icons. The air around him fills with windows and doorways, images and words, rumours and opinions, music and politics. Lies nestle with facts, jokes with atrocities, the exotic with the mundane. More information than the human brain was built to handle floats about him in a multicoloured, very textured, ever-shifting mosaic of triviality. Grids tries to stay away from the timelines. There's too much insignificance and it's contagious. Grids yawns, shakes his head. He defocuses on the swarm so it goes translucent, looks straight through it at Melody. Yeah, and what? She screw faces and he feels embarrassed again because she looks cute when she does it. Not bimbo, high street, wannabe gamer cute, but smart, confident and cute. He kind of likes her, but he's known her for a time, since they were little. Plus her mum would kill him. She sucks her teeth at him. Can you not see what everyone in the codes is chatting? Grid sighs. The timeline thing is such a chore. He blinks a couple of times, sets filters by popularity and neighbouring postcodes, and the swarm reassembles itself around him. A few things jump out, elbowing other tweets and posts and topics out of the way, a police beating in Lawrence Hill, a big graph bombing in Easton, some body in the canal by Feeder Road, and a skunk factory raid in Brislington. But one thing stands out, dominating his view, pushing its way to the front. A video file, Bear retweets. Grids clicks it. It's a specs cam capture, stereoscopic. Brief disorientation of being there but not. He's in, not in, a small room, scruffy walls lit by fluorescent tube lighting. Stacks of red shoeboxes, white ticks on the side. Arms that he can't control extend in front of him, grab a box, flip off the cardboard lid. Oh, scene, says College behind him, clearly writing the same clip. Pulling aside tissue paper, dropping it to the scuffed floor. Underneath are two trainers, white leather with grey plastic details, red ticks. They're turned to face him. A signature stitched in flickering OLEDs. Eugene Shawshot. Underneath, limited edition. 
This is my world now. Yeah, they're nice kicks, says Grids. And what? Melody sighs again, grabs him by the shoulder and drags him over to the window. South Bristol lies in front of him. Infinite fucking detail. From up here, it looks like the carpet scale world spreading out from Sure Shot's kicks in that ad, but twisted and broken, weathered and greyed, stained and British. An unplanned, confused mess of roads and buildings, housing estates and railway tracks. The grey and brown occasionally broken up by defined patches of green trees and parks. It's decentralised and pointless, never-ending until it fades into the ever-present drizzle bank, and all he can see on the horizon are the flashing warning lights of the bent paperclip shapes of cranes and communication towers. He thinks again about that sure-shot ad, and how Bristol looks like someone biohacked his shoes terraforming virus to make something poisoned and already dead. Or even that this is what was there before. This is the wasteland, waiting for sure shot, or the next man that's big enough to wear those kicks, waiting for them to come along and make their mark, wipe it all out, trample it down and start over again. Stand here, Melody says impatiently, and blink the geotag, man. He blinks the slowly turning globe icon. Instantly a huge arrow appears above Bristol spinning and bouncing and he knows straight away where it's pointing down onto. Avonmead's retail park, sandwiched between train tracks and a muddy river, half hidden under the concrete sprawl of the traffic filled St Philip's Causeway flyover, looks out of place amongst the grid of infrastructure and housing, like a scrap of unwanted paper, like a discarded burger wrapper that's been blown onto this huge rolled-out map or a crumpled note pinned in place with electricity pylons and aerials. A nowhere zone studded with near-forgotten retail brands and fast-food franchises. A glorified car park that would have been abandoned to the rats and seagulls if you could download coffee, fried chicken, and cheap household goods straight off the timelines. Shit fam, says College, it must be Footlocker, innit? What? says Melody. Footlocker long gone, it's Sports World now. Not even, says Grid. Sports World shut down, fam. It's a track and hood now. What if, says Melody. Fact is, they've got them Eugene Shaw Shaw kicks right now, and they ain't even street date until next week. And the rest. They ain't meant to be out for another ten days, says College. Damn, I want them kicks. Me too. Then let's go and get some, then, says Melody. But I'm skint, says Grids. The three of them all look at each other for a second, then laugh. Seriously, Grid says, looking at Melody. You want to do this, yeah? No gaming? No shit I do. What else you going to do today? She shoots him back a cheeky grin. But if we're going to do it, we got to do it quick. That clip's been all over the timelines for, like, nearly a full hour, fam. Shit, yeah, we're going to move fast, like now. And we're going to need more mans, like a few. Mm, most of BS4 is going to be thinking the same, probably worth a collab. College, can you get us somewhere we can talk? Yeah, I think I know a place. I'll get it running, then I'll hustle some people in, and get the smash grab server prepped. Nice, but keep it tight, yeah? On a down low until we're actually running. Ah, shit, I need to go get changed while you sort that. Oh, and Melody? What? Uh, can I beg some credit? Grids holds his rumbling stomach. Has your mum got any food in? 
Smash Grab 87064. Daily Unrest Highlights. Beijing Tesco Riots. Blink. Seattle Coffee Looting. Blink. Croydon UK Nando's Fire. Blink. Shadow King. Don't forget, hashtag Throne of Shadows is free to play. Sign up today and get 50,000 gold credit. All Specs OS supported. Blink. Hashtag free play. Fuck me, this shit is embarrassing, man. Gridge looks down at his heaving over-muscled chest, barely contained by the overlapping plates of shining armour. I mean, Jesus, fuck, look at me, bruv. Melody giggles, twirling a battle-axe with blood-stained blades the size of hubcaps above her head, like it's a majorette's baton. You can fucking talk, he says back to her. Take a look at yourself. Cover yourself up, girl. Serious. Melody giggles again, insensibly sized breasts jiggling. You know I'm hot. You wish you could get with this. Heads up, interrupts College from under the oversized brim of a purple gold star festooned wizard's hat. Lawrence Hill crew incoming. There's a flash of light, a swirling of mystic winds and a puff of magical smoke, and suddenly there's a green-skinned ogre and a hooded ranger stood in front of them. Text floating above their heads reveals them as Flex and Brainstorm. The other three burst into fits of giggles. Fuck you, man, says Flex, and fuck you too, man. Seriously, look at me. Man, look like a special needs man. Dunno, blood, orc-style kind of suit you, Flex, man. I said fuck you, man. Hate this neckbeard virgin epic fantasy shit, drawing off shadows. What did that even mean? Why couldn't we meet in one of them mafia games or World War II or some shit, man? Because them games are full of people, bruv, replies College. And where there's people, there's the feds, innit? This game is dead, son. No one's monitoring this shit. Plus, it's free, innit? I bought it into the wrong place at first, says Brainstorm, flicking what looks like some sticky black gore off his pretty green cape. Had to murk some goblins, fam. Really? College asks, genuinely interested. How was that? Brainstorm shrugs. All right. All right, games masters, you all can compare your experience points in a minute, says Grids. We got shit to sort and we ain't got much time. Flex, how deep you rolling today? I don't know, I reckon I can drum up ten, maybe a dozen mans. Short notice, innit? Safe, that's good. Reckon we can get the same from Barton ends. Should do us. But they all got to drag their asses into this shameful place and get registered, seen? Like College said, we're using this because it's dead and free. Plus it's got its own pervasive messenger so we can all chat in the reel and the feds won't know shit. You get me? The ogre, the wizard, the ranger and the scantily dressed she-warrior all nod back at him. Cridge shakes his head and tries not to laugh. College is going to be outside running media, explains Melody. Me and Grids and our crew will take point in track and hood. You guys will be on crowd control. All right, says Flex. I get you. Look, don't take this the wrong way. This your run, so I got no problem with you guys taking point. But my boys, you know, they ain't going to be happy unless a minimum of most of them come away with a pair of those short shot kicks. You get me? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Don't get vexed. That's why we're doing this. Get them kicks. Reason number one. Anything else, boosting rankings, whatever, is a bonus. In and out, and I'm sure I don't need specifying, but standard smash grab rules, yeah? No casualties, especially no civilians or staffs. Right, 
Everyone go get prepped, get your mans prepped. I want feet on that tarmac at 3pm sharp. No gaming. Smash grab 946355. Daily unrest highlights. Illegal Disneyland flash rave broken up. Blink. Shareholders throw chairs at Google meeting. Blink. Tokyo pensioners set fire to over-budget newly opened nursery. Blink. Battle Briz. Check it. Them kicks were filmed in Briz. Ten days and counting. Blink. Hashtag this is my world now. When Grids and his crew get to Avonmeads, he sees the being eyeballed by a fat black crow perched on top of a CCTV pole. Like the camera, it watches them pass. Last summer, whenever they came down here, college would go into this big thing about how the crows and the seagulls were in this big turf war around Avonmeads. But after watching them, Grids ain't too sure. He's seen both sides fighting with their own. There's no loyalty out here in the wasteland and it makes him jumpy. Back in the ends, he knows everyone, knows who he can trust, has a fair chance of guessing people's motives and strategies. Out here, the same conditions don't apply. This isn't his territory. He doesn't belong here. And the low whine of the camera and the crow's eyeball tracking him hammer that point home. He feels knots in his stomach, that feeling of being out of his comfort zone, of being watched and pointed out as an outsider. Avon Meads is less than 10 minutes' walk from Barton Hill from his ends, but it feels like a different world to him. Whenever there's any trouble with youth in places like this, the timelines erupt with opinions, people angry and shouting, saying, why are people like him making trouble and tearing up their own community? He shakes his head and laughs to himself. Community? There's no community down here. This isn't a community space. It's nowhere. A non-place. Nobody lives here. It's populated only fleetingly by transient visitors. Van drivers getting lunch, shoppers buying the few things they still can't buy through their specs or print at home. Even the staff in the shops here, none of them live here. They just come here for a few hours a day, a few days a week. Most of them don't even hold that down for long. There's about as much a sense of career down here as there is community. For a start, the shops never stay for long. Something opens, fills a short-term need, then closes. Storefronts lie dead and abandoned until someone thinks they've found another fleeting need, moves in, shuts down, open, close, repeat. Nah, the only thing that matters here is cash flow. It flows in and it flows out in huge armoured aerial drone-tracked security vans. And that's all it does. Nobody lives here, nobody works here for long, and the money doesn't stick around. Grids ain't no sociologist, but he's pretty sure that's not how a community is meant to work. And even if it is, then he's still not part of it, because he's got no cash. Never has. And down here, that makes him irrelevant. An outsider. That makes him insignificant. Except now he can feel his significance rise. Partly it's because he's rolling seven deep, most of his crew fronting behind him as he strides in, the rest already on sight waiting for the green light. But largely he can feel the wrong kind of significance radiating onto him, from the top of the poles and the sides of the pylons that litter the two-thirds empty car park. He can feel the cameras twitching like the crows and seagulls, tracking their moves, trying to place their faces. 
There's nothing much they can do to avoid the knowing gazers apart from keep their storm suit hoods up, their cap brims low and their specs polarised. Depending on what version the cameras are running, it might be enough. But even if it's not, then legally it shouldn't be an issue. They're all underage and most of them have never been cuffed for anything major so their faces shouldn't be on file. But Grids knows where there are laws, there are loopholes and it's more than likely the cameras are trying to match his face with timeline pictures, retail security wikis and the pupil data that Bristol City Academy dumps online for a small fee. But fuck them. Fuck the cameras and the wikis and the school that sells out its own kids. Fuck them all. They got nothing on him, fucking zero, and even if he is out here in the wasteland where he doesn't belong, he's rolling with his crew seven deep. Shoulders back, hoods up, heads high, You don't like it? Then what, son? What? Oh, shit, here we go, he hears Melody say beside him. From out of the gloom of the overpass, he hears the pathetic whine of electric motors as a golf cart pulls in front of the group, blocking their path. Big fat fucker in the driving seat squinted them through crappy, unbranded, rent-a-fed issue specs as he sticks a McDonald's coffee in the dashboard cup holder next to a bag of Greg's sausage rolls. He's got Group 4 retail response embroidered onto the polycarbon body armour that barely fits over his beer gut, and he winces from back pain as he heaves himself out of the driver's seat. All right, din boys, he says in a deep Bristol drawl, attempting to pull his sagging trousers up over his fat ass. Where is you two today, then? What? Who are you calling boy? What, you blind? Melody fronts him, screw-facing. All right, me babber, no need for all that, is there? Just answer my question now. Where are you going? Going to get a burger, College chips in. What? All right. And you got money for that burger, have you? All of you? Let me see your wallets. What? says Grid. Wallets? We don't carry cash, Grandad. What is this, the 1990s? Well, let me check the credit on your specs then. And you, he points at college, show me what's in that backpack of yours. What? You can't check our specs or search him. You ain't real feds. Fucking Renacop shop, someone murmurs behind him. Under section 14, paragraph 18 of the 2014 Anti-Terrorism Act, illegal protest, sporting events related violence and retail slash enterprise zone security and management act. Grids can tell the guards reading off specs prompts now. Any privately employed retail slash enterprise zone security or management employee with reason to suspect potential antisocial behavior or incitement to civil unrest can order the... Fuck you, man, interrupts college. You ain't looking in my bag. Grids feels his stomach turn. College's bag is full of goodies. The sort of grey to black market goodies that could get him in a fresh pile of shit. Come on, son, don't make this all unnecessary now. The security guard reaches out an armoured arm to grab the straps of College's backpack. College slaps his hand away. Get your fucking hands off me, you fucking pedo! Suddenly the whole crew is crowded around the security guard. Grids likes the feeling of strength he gets rolling with them. 
but right now he can feel plans and any vague sense of control he had out here slipping away. He can feel things about to kick off before they're meant to, and not how he had sketched them out. And then there's a beeping sound, a pinging from the golf cart and the guard's specs. He holds a hand up to the kids as if to signify shut up, turns his face away and sticks a finger from his other hand in his ear. Received on my way. And then he's awkwardly clambering back into the tiny little toy town car and speeding, if it can be called that, away. That's right, you fat pussy, shouts College after him. Go run your way back to Crispy K for some donuts. Fucking waste, man, says someone else. Yeah, get back in your milk float, grandad. Everyone starts laughing. Fuck, says Gridge to Melody. Shit was close there, fam. Did you hear the message, though? She replies. Something about trouble at Track and Hood. Serious? You could hear that? Yeah, I swear down. They watch the stupid little vehicle and its oversized driver wobble away across the tarmac. Grid sucks his teeth, worried some other crew has beat them to it. Guess we'd better go scope what's happening then, innit? Child Labour Watch. Leaked footage shows appalling conditions in Vietnamese shoe factory. Blink. Hashtag, this is my world now. Everyone in Grid's crew is pay-as-you-go, standardly, which means they can't opt out of ads, and they spend the walk over to track and hood swatting away floating Ronald McDonald's, grinning Colonel Sanders, and hyperactive anthropomorphic M&Ms. At one point, when some Z-list vert celeb is trying to ram a non-existent Greg's sausage roll down Grid's throat, It gets too much, and he actually takes his specs off for a bit, pulling his scarf up over his face at an attempt to substitute the disguise. But he knows it isn't really going to work, so he puts them back on, and they're all back again, up in his face, reminding him how hungry he is. Anyway, when they get there, it's clear, to his relief, that it wasn't another crew making a smash-grab raid on track and hood. The fat rent-a-cop and one of his buddies are dragging some guy away, kicking and screaming, although the screams are muffled by the black and white splattered gas mask he's wearing. His clothes, some knackered-looking old storm suit, is splattered with the same black and white too, and Grids guesses it must be some kind of paint. Then he clocks something, and it all falls into place. The guy they're dragging away is stenciled a still-fresh-looking 30-centimetre-square QR code onto track and field's window. Don't you be blinking that man, College says to him. Probably sketchy as fuck. Malware, believe. Grids looks at the QR code, then at the vexed guy they're dragging off, and back at the code. He blinks it. The surface of Track and Hood's window starts to shimmer and flex. A large black rectangle, something like a screen, pops away from the glass and floats in the air, video footage starting to fill it. It's rough and jerky, disorienting, and it takes a second or two for Grids to realise it's more specs cam capture, and even more illicit this time, like it was filmed secretly by someone that really shouldn't be filming at all. Wherever they are is fairly dark, apart from these long tables that are lit from above by painful fluorescent lights. Lots of people in matching yellow hats sat in rows along the tables. Lots of people. Mainly women, it looks like, hunched over. No, not women, children. 
Chinese-looking or Thai or something? Grids isn't sure. Is it a school? He can't see what they're doing. The camera specks where his head pans around the room, which is huge. No, it's not a school. Looks like a warehouse or a factory. The wearer gets closer to one of the tables. The kids look exhausted, sad, but concentrating faces. Some of the girls look tiny, like less than his brother's age. Maybe just ten years old, if that. The wearer goes up to one who glances up and then looks away, ashamed or scared. Over her shoulder, he can finally see what she's doing, stitching with a needle. The middle of the table is a conveyor belt, along which comes objects. He can see what they are now. Shoes. The girls reach out and grab them as they pass, work on them. They're trainers, white leather with grey plastic details, red ticks. The girl in front of the wearer grabs one, and with tiny hands he can see that she's stitching something in flickering OLED thread, filling a printed outline, a signature, Eugene Shawshot. Underneath, limited edition, this is my world now. She looks back up at the camera again, tired and frightened. Freeze frame, scrolling text, average ages, hours worked, amounts paid, Grids feels the hairs on the back of his neck prick up. Fuck me, he says slowly. What? asks College, turns to look at him. Oh man, you blinked it, didn't you? Oh my days, nice one, gee. You better not be infecting my shit, yeah? No man, not malware, Grids shudders, just nasty. I told you not to blink it. Fucking great. I'm telling you, it ain't malware, just a video file. What is it, Grids? asks Melody. Probably a fucking Trojan, says College. Dickhead. Shut it, College. Just a video, Mel. Bit murky. Don't stress it. Yeah, well, assuming you ain't just fried all your apps, I suggest we do this thing, yeah? You know, while Fatty and his mate are busy hoarding off that angry hipster? Aye, yeah. Grids tries to snap himself back into alert mode. Go mode. Send that message out. Let's do this, fam. Next one. Ten days. These new Eugene Shaw shots look next level, and they in hashtag Bristol already. Blink. Hashtag this is my world now. College doesn't know where the smash grab servers are hosted or who runs them, but he's heard all the rumours. He's heard the one that says they're carried around by a swarm of autonomous, solar-powered, high-altitude drones that never touch down and are maintained remotely by a collective of hacktivists on the east coast of the US. And the one that says a Russian gambling oligarch hosts them in a stolen nuclear submarine illegally patched into a mainline cable on the floor of the Baltic Sea. Then, of course, there are the tinfoil hat theories that actually the feds run the whole thing in order to catch kids like him and even take a cut of the betting profits. College don't know which is true, if any, but he's pretty sure the last one is bullshit. He's been running smash grab games for nearly a year now, since someone at school explained the whole setup to him, and he's never been caught. The feds have never come and knock at his door, never surprised him with an unexpected visit at school. Yeah, sure, first few times they did a run, he nearly bricked himself every time he turned a corner near the ends, and there was a squad car parked up, but nothing ever happened. Beyond the standard stop and searches, he never got any hassle, and they were so regular these days that he doubted they were ever connected. So no, 
He doesn't know who runs Smash Grab, and he doesn't really care as long as they keep it locked down. He logs into the server right now, blinking and focusing through layer upon layer of passwords and image security until he gets to the game he'd prepped earlier, before they'd left. He'd spent a good hour this morning checking everything was right, setting up objectives and registering the players from both crews, making sure their profiles were up to date and negotiating odds with the server's automated agents. He'd even managed to pick up some sponsorship. A couple of glazing and security alarm companies had taken the bait, or at least their autonomous ad-buying spiders had, giving them plausible deniability if anybody should ask any questions. Though as far as college knows, no one ever does. Anyway, the game looks set. He gives it all one last check, The players are all there, their avatars rotating slowly in a grid, stats unfurling when he lets his gaze hover over them. Followers, rankings, products liberated, most common stolen and destroyed brands, pains broken, fires started, and the two most important of all, the smash and grab scores, the grand total value of damage caused and items robbed. Now college knows there are some big hitters out there, He's seen kids in Malaysia walk out of smashed-up shopping malls with TVs the size of a tennis court. He's seen a gang of girls in Tehran cover an armoured personnel carrier in pink paint and dance topless around it while its crew ran from the black smoke that poured from its doors and slit-like windows. Mad points, big rankings, a different league. But, scale things down to a city level, so you're just looking at the rankings for Bristol... And his crew ain't too shabby either. Filter the tables by postcodes and really it's only the hippiesters, the self-proclaimed People's Republic of Stokes Croft, that give them a run for their money. But those soap dodgers have got a different strategy on the whole game and it's reflected in their scores. They're well down low on the rob scores, up much higher on the criminal damage achievements. Those kids just like burning shit. He's watched them both on smash grab and out on the streets, set fire to a Nando's full of perfectly good chicken, smashing bottles of peri-peri sauce off of balconies in Cabo Circus while his crew's stomachs rumbled. They say it's because they want to make a point, because they've got a political agenda. But to college, it's just another way of playing the game, a different strategy. It's wasteful to him and the crew he rolls with, to people who ain't got the shit they want, the shit they've been told since they were toddlers they need to get, but he can see how it works for them. Keeps them clean, burning the evidence. He's seen more gamers get busted through stop and search or random raids on cribs full of illicit stock than through CCTV footage or timeline trackbacks, so it kind of rules all that out. Plus, those hippiesters claim they don't want any of that shit anyway, which is why they're doing it. But college ain't always buying that. He sees them with the latest specs and augmented clothes, buying bread from their artisan bakeries and eating locally sourced chicken in their organic restaurants up in Montpellier, where he could only dream of being able to afford a cup of free trade coffee. Nah, he thinks, fuck their political agenda, it's just a cover. They want shit like everyone else. It's just different shit they buy with the money their parents out in the suburbs give them. But most of all, like everyone on Smash Grab, they want to be seen. They want the props. Like everyone on the timelines and off, they want the significance. That's what it's about today. Significance. And those fucking peng-looking sure-shot kicks, son. 
He blinks play. The server plays him a quick siren sample in confirmation and unseen to him starts to sur into life. 200,000 dummy profiles start talking to a combined follow mass of over 6 million, dropping updates and spamming forums, hijacking hashtags and spawning new ones. Botnet starts subtly looting resources to host anonymous video streams. Ripples expand in social space. College is out of the server for a second, blinks open the Throne of Shadows messenger client, struggling to read text in the hilariously cheesy-looking fantasy font it insists on using for everything. In between sighing at the neckbeard bullshit, he manages to shoot out a message to both crews. Go time. Smash grab 998677. It's on! New game. Bristol UK trainer raid. Tune in and place your bets now. Blink. Grids gets the message, pulls his cap down tight, checks his scarf is round his face, checks his hood. The tiny smash rob window pops open in his periphery. He's already got 634 followers climbing. Who knows who they are? Board office workers, slum kids, stockbrokers, fashionistas, online griefers, lazy journalists, housewives, angry daily mail readers. Better give them something to watch. Go time. 782 followers. Nerves start to churn in his empty stomach. He glances across the car park and here they come, spilling out of McDonald's and Costa Coffee, the rest of the combined Lawrence Hill and Barton Hill crews, rolling nearly 30 deep, hoods up, caps low, specks and bandanas, black, white and brown skin, all but disguised. Girls and boys, some young youths, some older soldiers, moving en masse towards him, on point, on cue, the nerves steady, adrenaline kicking in, significance taking over... 1,000 followers. Achievement unlocked. Ten times point multiplier. And then him and Melody are through the doors into track and hood. On point. The others cramming through behind them and it all goes off. Most of them are just grabbing shit, throwing it to the floor, kicking over displays. Some kitty has bust open a tube of tennis balls and is lobbing them across the store. Sounds of laughing and cheers and unadulterated joy. Playtime. Pent up frustration and drab boredom channeled into expression and dance. Grids and Melody are more focused, though. That's why they're on point. He grabs a cricket bat. Melody finds a golf club. They laugh and whirl, raining stock from shelves with their newly found toys, for once enjoying their youth and innocence, free from judgment and control. They smile as one, the whole crew, a shared moment of ecstasy and belonging. Grids smashes glass display cabinets full of overpriced AR fitness gadgets, run trackers and pulse monitors, and coins dance in front of his face, clocking up points to a ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching video game soundtrack. He crushes boxes with his foot like Mario stomping mushrooms, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. 3,000 followers, achievement unlocked, 20 times points multiplier. White Van Stan. Check my stream. Little Chav Kids kicking off at Avonmead. Streaming live now. Hashtag riots. Blink. Outside, most of the Lawrence Hill crew is preparing for the inevitable. Four of them hurtle around from the back of Pizza Hut, dragging and pushing a huge wheeled recycling bin, scattering civilians from their path, some of them running for the safety of their cars, but most of them just hanging back watching, recording, streaming, filling the timelines with more traffic. 
a mixture of outrage, bemusement and shameful glee. College has to move quick, this he knows. He drops his backpack to the floor, unzips it, pulls out the first micro-drone, throws it into the sky. Then the next, the third, the fourth. The four little insect things hang above him in the air, circling each other, suspended on quad rotors, ball cameras twitching. With blinks he sends two through the shop's open doors and the other two into higher orbits, a crow's eye view. Windows fill the air around him and he's running the media, jumping between streams, not just the drones, but from grids and melody specs too. Scratch mixing into one output to the smash grab server, cutting, mixing, transforming, flipping highlights into backspun rewinds. From out of the shop, a piercing alarm bell rings, a shrill, unending, skull-piercing tone designed to scare as much as alert, and he samples it with a couple of blinks, runs it through a loop chopper to make a wall of noise riff, drops one of Melody's pre-cooked beats, sprinkles it with some 808 snares and grounds it with sub-bass, punctuates it with a few hand claps and dub sirens, checks levels, adds reverb and drops it over the output stream. Achievement unlocked. Stanley fucking Kubrick. Media control bonus. 20 times points multiplier. The recycling bin hits the curb and flips, unleashing its rolling and smashing cargo of bottles and jars in an explosion of colour and sound, college dropping a drone down to just a couple of feet above the mess, close-up arthouse shots for the pixel geeks and hipsters. Some of the Lawrence Hill boys have started on the windows, railing against them with their feet and bottles, trying to break the almost smash-proof glass. It's not giving in, it never does at first... Instead, it turns itself into overlapping cobwebs of white, fractured patterns of infinite fucking detail. For a while, College thinks it's not going to go this time, which means missing a massive destruction points bonus, until something hurls past him, something big and stupid and oh-so-wonderfully funny that College laughs so much he nearly forgets to stream it. F1 Fan Feral youths need rounding up and shipping off to Falklands. Teach them some discipline. Hashtag riots. Catekins 13. Wow, apparently these filthy little chabs in Bristol want some new trainers bad. Hashtag LOL scum. Blink. Grids pauses for a second, catches his breath, looks around and drinks it all in. Someone must have slashed open a goose down ski jacket. Who the fuck in these codes goes skiing, man? And the air is full of slow-moving feathers swirling lazily like anime cherry blossom. The alarm stubbornly persists in its efforts to make him flee, but it's all but drowned out by sounds of laughter and glee and college's overdubbed soundtrack. He watches Melody and two other girls gleefully take apart a display of rugby boots, their golf clubs and tennis rackets arching gracefully in the air, and realises this is the happiest he's felt for time. He knows it's fleeting, ephemeral, but nothing beats the rush of unchained freedom and significance. Then there's a crashing sound from the front of the shop, and he sees most of the glass fall in. It's a shattered mess, but it's largely holding together as one piece, as something huge powers its way through, slamming into the already wrecked clothes rack. It takes him a quick second to realise it's the security guard's little electric car and another to realise that Flex is driving it. Everyone in track and hood freezes and turns to look at him, the air full of 
palpable disbelief as the 15-year-old stands up on the cart's front seats, hands outstretched above his head in a gamer's victory stance. Yes, indeed, Famalam, he bellows in an exaggerated Jamaican accent. Your ride is here, ready and waiting for cargo, seen, Lord the bad boy, our brethren. And then everyone's laughing and cheering, bowing and fist bumping him, and he's taking bows and shaking his head in mock humility, loving the significance, as mans crowd around the little car, loading it up with trainers and t-shirts, storm suits and caps. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Achievement unlocked. Window shopping, criminal damage, stock liberation combo bonus, 60 times points multiplier. When Grid stops laughing, he realises why he's actually here and snaps back into objective mode. He grabs Melody and Threat Level, another member of his crew, currently puncturing footballs with a Stanley knife, and they head to the back of the shop with one of College's drones buzzing along behind them, their feet crunching satisfyingly on glass and debris. Behind the shop's counter stands a solitary figure in a track and hood shirt, hands on his head in dazed dismay. Grid levels the end of the cricket bat at him. No fucking about, blood. Where's the short shot trainers? Shit, Grids, the kid says. You no idea how much shit I'm going to be in, man. Grids pushes his specs up onto his forehead, squints at a familiar face. Rizza, what are you doing here, man? Trying to work, fam, he shakes his head. What? I didn't know you worked here. Cause he does, says Melody. Who do you think posted that clip? Yeah, that was a fucking mess fire, Rizza says, despondent. On work fair, innit? Oh, when they find out about this shit, they're going to cancel my travel pass and I ain't going to be able to get to college, man. Grids feels a pang of guilt, but it's too late now. No turning back. I'm sorry, man, truth, but I need to get them kicks, fam. Yeah, I know, uh... Back through there in the storeroom, innit? You the only staff here, Grids asks. Rizza nods back at him. Then I suggest you fuck off now, and I am sorry. And with that, Rizza is gone, grabbing a few choice bits of stock on his way out, plus some paper from the till. Standard. Grids follows after Melody and Threat, who's already kicked in the storeroom door. The three squeeze into the tiny dim room, and there they are. The red boxes with white ticks, stacked up all neat in the corner, just like in the clip. He grabs the nearest box, rips off the lid, tissue paper falling to the floor, lets his fingers run over the leather and plastic and the stitched detailing, flashback to that dim factory, those little girl's hands, and he's pulling them out, dropping the box, kicking off his own battered kicks and slipping on the fresh creps. His specs chime. A shoe icon appears in his periphery, followed by a green tick. Paired. Around Grid's feet, where his limited edition shoes hit the ground, deserts bloom, city blocks rise and mountains rip themselves from the ground. Vistas erupt from each footfall, spreading like bacteria, mingling, creating landscapes. New places from the dead ground. Civilizations rise, intricate detail evolves around the soles of giant feet. The storeroom floor is transforming itself around Grid's feet into streets and parks, buildings and city blocks. Infinite fucking detail like Grid's hasn't seen since the last time. As he looks, he can see little statues of himself, his face on billboards and video screens. 
so small, so complex, a perfectly formed world on the carpet scale. Achievement unlocked. Retail therapy. Stock liberation objective completed. 100 times points multiplier. Grids feels himself mouth the words, not sure if it's out loud or just to himself. This is my world now. Understand? BBC Bristol. Breaking. Hooded teenagers looting sports store in Avon Meads. Watch live now. Blink. XX Kaylee XX. Disgusting. I feel sick. Someone should assassinate whoever runs Smash Grab. Real England. Let them get on with it, I say. Let them burn their own neighbourhoods to the ground. Then, when there's nothing left, maybe they'll finally go back to their own countries. Outside, the Lawrence Hill crew is holding off a bunch of flabby, riot-shielded security guards with a constant hail of bottles and jars. All apart from a couple who are playfully trying to shake out a sinister-looking police drone that's hovering over Avonmead's. It flits left and right, effortlessly dodging their missiles, but no matter, the missing bottles are downwards onto parked cars and vans. Bonus criminal damage points. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. College is a bit more worried, though. He knows that drone means it's time to start winding things down. He checks the cop watch wiki, as he suspected, riot unit inbound. He fires up the Throne of Shadows client and drops everyone a three-minute warning, blinks into the vid feeds again. From the drone in the storeroom, he can see Grid's threat and Melody packing the sure shot kicks into black plastic bags they've produced from pockets on their storm suits. Nice footage. Flips to Grid's feed to get a close-up. Wait, nah, that ain't right. What's this? Some dark room, much darker than the storeroom. Long tables with kids at them in pools of overhead light. Murkiness. He opens up a VoIP channel with Grid's direct. What's up? What's up? Your shit is fucked up, that's what's up, fam. College is pissed. Why you never listen to me, man? That QR you blinked earlier was straight mail, bruv. Fucking Trojan, innit? Your stream is fucked and showing some random shit right now. Bullshit. No, it's not bullshit, man. You fucking go look and see what it's saying. Grids pauses his packing and checks his stream. The factory, the kids, little girl hands and OLED stitching. College is right, it's that clip from earlier. Trojan business, Jack in his stream. Ah, shit, not now. He looks around at Threat and Melody and the shoes they're deboxing into the bin bags, dozens of them, enough that they start to look insignificant. Glances back at his stream, the little girls, same age as his brother, churning them out, filling the warehouse. He thinks fast, knows what he must do. College is back on the line. I'm cutting off your stream, Grids. Nah, no, college fam, leave here, man. Seriously, I want people to see that shit. What? Don't game. Serious, fam, leave here. Please, look, me and Mel are coming out right this second. Just leave that stream up, mix it with the main, and make sure you got a drone on me, please. You can hear college suck his teeth on the other end of the line. Pause. Okay, aight, but quick, man. Feds soon come. Threat has gone. Melody and Grids grab one of the two bags each. They exit the track and hood, which looks like a bulldozer has been through it, the carpet compacted hard with crushed plastic and glass. The rest of his crew have all fled, spurred on by college's warnings. 
Out on the curb, squinting at the carnage around him, Grids empties his bag of black trainers into a pile on the floor, snatches melodies and does the same. What the fuck? Flares, he shouts at her. Now! She reaches inside her baggy storm suit, pulls out the final treat. Two foot-long black tubes, passes one to Grids. She ignites the end of hers with a disposable lighter, passes it to him, he does the same. The grim, overcast Bristol day is lit up by twin, tiny, intensely bright green suns. He holds his outer arm's length and he can still feel the heat on his cheeks. White smoke bellows, a dull wind blowing it across the Avonmead's wasteland. Grids watches Melody turn in slow motion and launch her flare into the shop, its flight traced by neon light trails across his retinas, the wrecked store interior instantly filling with white smoke. He turns back, his flare held high, pouring out that thick white smoke, looking for College's drone. One drops down in front of him, head height, ball camera twitching until it focuses on him. Grids breathes deep, summons strength, squashes nerves and self-doubt with significance, looks straight into the camera and speaks to the potential millions that will see him. If you've seen what's playing on my stream, yeah, then you know why I'm doing this. This is for them, yeah, for them girls, for all the kids, for all the kids that can't come down here and do what we do. This is for them because it's their world now. He drops the flare. As it hits the pile of trainers, they ignite bright green and blue. A cloud of white smoke and the smell of burning plastic hits him and he stumbles back and he can hear protests from some of the other raiders, but it's too late. Time's up, game's over. He glances to his left and he can see the low, squat, six-wheeled, windowless, armour-plated box of the riot truck swerve off the overpass, taking out some bins and half a golden arch. As it skids down towards them, air brakes screeching, a turret on its front twitching to life and aiming at him and... Eyes down! He hears college scream. He looks at the ground and covers his eyes with both hands but still sees the flash. Everything goes red. Wide-beam, non-lethal anti-riot laser, standard procedure. When he looks up again, the smoke is filled with stumbling shapes, clueless civilians blinded by the beam that's meant to be protecting them, shuffling around in a panic like shopping mall zombies. And then he's running between them, through the smoke and chaos, him and Melody and College following the others, under the dark underpass and the roar of overhead cars and juggernauts, and then up over the chain-link fence and dropping down into the non-place wasteland beyond, between the infinite pylons and transmitters, the communications towers studded with dishes and aerials, and the diesel-blackened trees, following the train tracks until the towers of Barton Hill rise in front of them, welcoming them home. Smash Grab 8726531 Today's Rising Stars, Luana G, Havana, Cuba Grids, Bristol, UK Suena Lee, Hanoi, Vietnam Flexman, Bristol, UK Blink. Eugene Shawshot Official. Wow, looks like some of my people over there in the UK are hyped for my shoes. Keep calm, little homies. Hold tight. Only ten days left. Hashtag this is my world now. Man you forever. Little feral rats should be round up and shot. And who says they're poor? How can they afford the best specs and designer clothes then? They're dressed better than me. Disgusting. 
Bloomberg Biz. Sakura, SKU, sees stock rise after viral campaigns and UK looting boost demand for new celebrity gamer trainer range. Blink. People's Republic Stokescroft. Salute to Grid's Barton Hill crew, true soldier showing us how it's done. Blink. Roger Helmet, MP. The suggestion that this is somehow about politics or human rights is ridiculous. These are nothing more than work-shy thugs looking to make a quick buck. It is time to take this country's streets back from these scum. Dan Calistrio. Wow, watch them kiddies go. Fair play, though. I hate shoe shopping, too. Never got anything in my size. Someone knocks on the door and Grids comes out of his room. Checks through the spy hole who it is before opening up. He's had to keep his head down for a day or two. It's not just the feds he's worried about, but he's pissed off plenty of people in the ends with his little stunt. Melody bought it, he thinks. In fact, she even seemed a little impressed. But he could tell College was pissed despite what he said. As for the Lawrence Hill crew, well, best he keep a low profile around the codes for a while unless he wants to get jacked. It's the pizza guy at the door. He unhooks the chain, opens it up, takes the two big boxes and transfers him credit from his specs. It's the last of the few quid he made by trading in some of his points on the smash grab server. Means his ranking has taken a major kicking, but it's all good if it means he can feed everyone for a few days. Plus, there'll be more runs, more points. Standard. He carries the boxes back into the lounge, drops them down onto the threadbare carpet in front of his little brother and sister, who are busy watching Korean samurai cartoons. He smiles as they set upon them, steam bellowing from the boxes as they flip open the lids. Try and leave some for Dad, yeah? If he ever wakes up. He glances over at the sofa, shakes his head. His dad is flat out as usual, immersion headset strapped to his face, empty, unbranded cider cans littering the floor around him, ashtrays full of spliff ends spilling out on the carpet. Grids bends over and grabs a couple of slices for himself, rustles his brother's thick hair playfully before heading back to his room. On the way there, he pauses in the hallway to stare down at his feet, the Eugene Shawshot limited edition trainers still immaculate. They're so clean that he almost never wants them to leave the flat. But as he watches cities bloom in infinite fucking detail on the carpet around him, he knows there's no point in that. He'll have to watch his back wearing them, that's for sure. But they need to be seen. It's still a week until the street date, and these are the only pair in the ends. He made sure of that. Unparalleled significance. Until then, at least... This is his world now. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Tim's. Tim, that's just fantastic. I loved it, to be quite honest. I loved it, and I'll tell you why I loved it. Just captured, yes, Tim's English. Obviously, he's going to get the, the kind of nuances and everything like that, but it was just so bang up to date, but just with that science fiction twist there, just loving it, you know what I mean? I've, I've, there's a couple of stories where you've, I've kind of heard out and about there, you know, and they've used like kind of the, the, the kind of the talk of today, you know, the kind of hashtag tweets and all that. Just doesn't seem to the kind of fit right where Tim seems to like, you know, 
just kind of tuned in and got it got it right there, but with a, a great idea and a great story. Do you know what I mean? Tim, fantastic. Thank you very much for lending with that. So there you go. Next up is another fact article. It is our very own Dennis, who, like I say, was already primed. How that must that feel? You know what I mean? Kind of ready to go in the kind of live audience and action, and it doesn't work. And he was just sat, sat there by himself in his living room. So we've got Dennis, kind of, like I say, kindly recorded Forbidden Planet and his little film talk. And this is it. A review from the Jacaranda City. First of all, I would like to apologise to the attendees of SofaCon. This was supposed to have been presented in live video form there. Unfortunately, South African telecommunications can fail at the most inopportune moments. Today, I'd like to talk about one of the most influential science fiction films of the 1950s, Forbidden Planet, from 1956. I'll also touch on Shakespearean themes in some other movies. For those of you who don't know the movie, it is basically an adaptation of The Tempest, set late in the 22nd century. The film opens with shots of a giant flying saucer, and one might expect the story to revolve around an alien invasion. But we soon learn that it is the United Planet Cruiser C-57D, and that Commander J.J. Adams and his crew are headed for the fourth planet of the Altair system to search for survivors of the Bellerophon expedition from 20 years earlier. Once they have decelerated and entered orbit, they make contact with Morbius, who tells them that he is fine and that he needs nothing. He also says that he can't guarantee the safety of the crew. As the trip has taken a year, Commander Adams isn't about to just turn around and go back, so the ship lands on a column of blue light, some sort of energy beam. Within minutes, a dust cloud speeds towards them, any Brits of a certain age will be reminded of Michael Benteen's potty time. When the cloud arrives, we meet Robbie the robot, who is the driver of the vehicle. He takes the commander, the pilot, Jerry Farman, and Doc Ostro to meet Dr. Morbius. While at the house, they also meet his daughter, Altera, Farman spending most of his time flirting with her. When Commander Adams says that it will take ten days to build a transmitter to send a signal to Earth, Morbius is spurred to lend them Robbie to speed up the job. On the second night on Altair 4, two guards think that they can hear breathing, but can see nothing. The next morning, damaged equipment is discovered. The commander confronts Morbius, who admits that the planet was once inhabited by the Krell, an advanced race that disappeared in a single night 2,000 centuries ago. He explains that he has experimented with the Krell technology and has seen his IQ rocket but the technology needs to be controlled, and he has taken the task upon himself. He shows them various bits of technology, culminating in the iconic scene where they walk through the giant machine that goes down 7,800 levels below the surface of the planet and stretches 20 miles in each direction. During the discussions, they are paged and find out that Chief Quinn has been murdered. At first, Robbie the robot is suspected, but he has an alibi. He'd been making bourbon for the ship's cook. A force field and weapons are set up outside the ship, and that night they are attacked. The radar shows that they are getting direct hits on the invisible creature, but it just keeps coming. When it comes into contact with the force field, they see a strange creature with an unusual mix of attributes. Some of the crew attack it, but are killed. Altera dreams about the attack and screams, waking up Dr. Morbius. 
As he wakes, the creature disappears. Commander Adams and Doc go to the Morbius home and Doc uses the machine that increases intelligence. He learns that the Krell succeeded in their move beyond the physical, but didn't take into account the subconscious monsters that they would release. Monsters from the id. Then Doc dies from the effects of the machine. When Morbius learns of the monsters of the id, he realizes that he is the one who killed everybody. They retreat to a secure lab, but the monster comes after them. It burns its way through the door, and Dr. Morbius realizes that his daughter is also in danger. He stops the monster, but is fatally wounded. Realizing that the technology is just too dangerous, he instructs Adams on how to set off a chain reaction in the giant reactors, giving them 24 hours to get far enough away. In the last scene, we see Altair 4 blow up, and Adams assures Altera that her father's memory will shine like a beacon. Moving on to the stars of the film, the producers of Forbidden Planet certainly knew how to pick actors with longevity. If you count Robbie the Robot, then the four main actors have a combined career of 218 years. First, we have Leslie Nielsen, who plays Commander J.J. Adams. In most people's minds, Nielsen is forever linked to the Naked Gun and Airplane movies. But in 1952 and 53, he did take on a number of roles in the groundbreaking live broadcast TV series Tales of Tomorrow, a series that predated both The Twilight Zone from 1959 and The Outer Limits from 1963. He also appeared in one episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and one episode of the 1960s TV version of The Wild Wild West, and a two-parter in The Man from Uncle. And, of course, was the captain in the original Poseidon adventure. Much later in his career, he was the voice of Zero Man in the 2004 animated TV series. Anyone who remembers the Rocky Horror Picture Show will know Anne Francis stars in Forbidden Planet. She plays Altera Morbius. The year before Forbidden Planet, she'd starred alongside Spencer Tracy in Bad Day at Black Rock and Glenn Ford in Blackboard Jungle, so a pretty good year. She went on to star as Marsha White in the 1960 Twilight Zone episode After Hours and as Jess Bell Stone in the 1963 episode Jess Bell. In 1965 and 6, she starred as private investigator Honey West on TV and appeared in the movie The Satan Bug. By my count, she played 163 TV roles and 44 film roles. Just name a US TV series from the 50s to the 90s and she probably appeared in it. Walter Pigeon plays Dr. Edward Morbius. Pigeon was already 30 years into a distinguished career by the time he appeared in Forbidden Planet. Prior to this movie, he had starred as Clem Miniver in Mrs. Miniver and The Miniver Story, and as Harry Pebble in The Bad and the Beautiful. Later, he starred as Admiral Harriman Nelson in the 1961 movie of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Finally, we have Robbie the Robot. The first known use of the name Robbie the Robot was for a mechanical decoy that Doc Savage used in The Fantastic Island in 1935. Then there was the childcare robot in Asimov's short story Robbie from 1940. But they were nothing compared to this Robbie. The year after Forbidden Planet, there is the movie The Invisible Boy, where Robbie is brought back to 23rd century Earth by an evil supercomputer intent on taking over the world using a military satellite. Subsequently, Robbie has appeared in 27 different TV shows, including The Twilight Zone, 
The Man from Uncle, and in Lost in Space, he appeared as two different characters in different episodes. Looking at the rest of the crew, the screenplay was by Cyril Hume, who also adapted the 1932 classic Tarzan the Ape Man, which starred Johnny Weismuller and is, for me, the Tarzan. Hume also wrote numerous other Tarzan movies. The story idea came from Irving Block, a jack-of-all-trades who was a writer, producer and special effects designer and creator on numerous science-fiction B-movies, and Alan Adler, who also developed the story for the giant behemoth. The movie was directed by Fred M. Wilcox, who had previously directed Lassie Come Home in 1943 and The Secret Garden in 1949. Louis Barron and Bebe Barron, who had composed Heavenly Menagerie for Magnetic Tape in 1950, composed what was the first entirely electronic score for a film. The only instrumental music was used in the trailer. They didn't belong to the Musicians' Union, and so, to avoid potential problems, their credit was changed from electronic music to electronic tonalities. Also, because of their non-membership in the Union, they weren't considered for Oscars in either the soundtrack or special effects category, which I feel were both absolutely deserved. Robbie the Robot was built by Robert Kinoshita, who went on to become the art director for the Lost in Space TV series. While MGM Studios once had its own full animation department, by 1956 it was pretty much defunct, so some of the critical animation effects, such as the landing beam, weapons blasts, Robbie overloading and the id monster, were created by Joshua Meador, who was on loan from Walt Disney Pictures. As I said at the beginning, this was a very influential movie. This was one of the first times that a science fiction project had received a large budget. MGM spent $1.9 million on the film. Its critical success is credited as being a major factor in making future big-budget science fiction movies possible. The movie's poster was placed at number 5 of the 25 best movie posters ever by Premier Magazine, even though the image isn't actually from the film. The creator of Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry, credited Forbidden Planet as being a major inspiration for the series. It's said that the serial number of the Starship Enterprise, 1701, comes from the clock mark, 1701, when the C-57D enters orbit around Altair 4. You may want to keep an eye out for a local production of Return to the Forbidden Planet. Billed as Shakespeare's long-lost rock-and-roll masterpiece, it was written by Bob Carlton. The story was based on The Tempest, which was the inspiration for the original film, but it also featured lines from many other Shakespeare plays. The stage show featured the cast playing the instruments and singing a range of songs from the 50s and 60s, plus, on a giant screen, a narrator. When I saw it in London in 1990, it was Sir Patrick Moore. There were two versions, as it was developed, and so the production won the Olivier Award for the Best New Musical for both 1989 and 1990. I have tried, unsuccessfully, to find a video, but there is a full-cast CD of the production that I highly recommend. Now I'd like to point out a few of the Shakespeare-flavoured science fiction movies. Or maybe science fiction-flavoured Shakespeare movies. First of all, there is Richard III from 1995. I count this as science fiction, as it's an alternate history in which Ian McKellen plays Richard in a 1930s fascist England. As I was preparing for this talk, this version of Richard III brought to mind the brilliant 1983 BBC adaptation of Rex Warner's The Aerodrome, which was written in 1941. It hasn't been broadcast since 1983, 
but I did manage to find it on YouTube, and it's well worth searching it out. Next, we have King Lear from 1987. It's directed by Jean-Luc Godard and is an experimental movie. What would you expect? It's set in a world where the Chernobyl meltdown has wiped out much of the art in the world. William Shakespeare Jr. V, played by Peter Sellers, travels the world in an attempt to restore his famous ancestor's lost works. Along the way, he meets a gangster, Don Liero, played by Burgess Meredith, and his lovely daughter Cordelia, Molly Ringwald. And the resulting movie is edited by Mr. Alien, played by Woody Allen. The part of the fool is taken on by the director himself, with added dreadlocks. The link to King Lear is tenuous to say the least, but for experimental film buffs, it is worth a look. I'm still trying to find a copy of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Undead from 2009, in which the director of an adaptation of Hamlet finds himself in a 2,000-year-old conspiracy that relates the Holy Grail to Shakespeare. The writer of the adaptation, the vampire Theo Horace, has a plan to lure the real Hamlet out of hiding so that he can end their centuries-long feud. Then we have Time Flies, made in 1944. This really took me back to all the old movies that BBC Two used to run on a Saturday morning. It's directed by Walter Ford, more famous for the Arthur Askey movie The Ghost Train from 1941. Time Flies stars Tommy Handley as a failed performer who uses a professor's invention to go back in time with a comedy duo. Shakespeare has writer's block, and Susie, one of the comedy duo, quotes famous lines from his plays to him. Which he then writes down. This is the first instance I know of this idea, which has been used numerous times since. I recently discovered the tragedy of Macbeth from 2012. This is a project that I think is well worth supporting from the Robot Shakespeare Company. It's produced for those who want to get into Shakespeare but struggle with the language, or for people who just like robots. Their first production, The Tragedy of Macbeth, came out last year and uses the original text. Acted by CGI robots with everyday English subtitles, and is produced entirely on open source software. The adaptation is available online with notes for each scene at robotshakespearecompany.com, and is also available as a DVD. Finally, you have to take a look at 1993's Last Action Hero. Not a Shakespeare movie, but there is a trailer in the film for one of Jack Slater's films, the character played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. As the voiceover states, something is rotten in Denmark, and Hamlet is taking out the trash. That's the end of my short talk on Forbidden Planet. And if you watch nothing else, do go and check out the Robot Shakespeare Company. Bye. There you go. What I'll do as well, Dennis sent over some slides for Forbidden Planet, which we're just going to use in his talk. I'll put them up on on the server as well, and you can, if you want, you can come over and download them as well. So Dennis has kindly offered them up as well. So Dennis, what can I say? <laughs> and action. <laughs> there you go. Well, that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. Lovely to be back. We've, like I say, we've been away. Batteries recharged, ready to go, and. While I was over again on holiday as well, you know, a couple of donations came in. So whoever you are out there, I don't want to mention names, but a big thank you. Honestly, you're just keeping this little girl going, and that's what that's what it's all about. Just we, we haven't got an end date, you know what I mean? We just kind of want to keep on going. That's the whole important thing. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me.
survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.